Narrative Futures. How do the stories we tell shape how we think about the future, the present, and the past? What is speculation for? And how might we construct better narratives for a better future? Narrative Futures is a podcast coming to you from Futures Thinking, a research network housed in the Oxford Centre for Research in the Humanities. My name is Chelsea Haith. I'm a doctoral researcher in the Faculty of English here at the University of Oxford. Our guest for this fourth episode of Narrative Futures is Mavesh Murad, joining us to discuss editing speculative fiction, the art of the short story, and the narrative and aesthetic value of TikTok. This podcast is interactive. Following the interview, you'll be treated to two writing prompts designed by novelist and creative writing tutor extraordinaire Louis Greenberg. We invite you to share your response to these with us via email at futuresthinking at torch.ox.ac.uk. We'll share these on the blog, where you'll also be able to find the full transcript of each episode with links to the books, writers and ideas that we discuss. As the world so radically changes, we hope these conversations and ideas give you insight and inspiration to think about how else we might live and create collectively going forward. Mavesh Mirad is an editor and voice artist from Karachi, Pakistan, who currently lives in Kuala Lumpur. She is the editor for The Apex Book of World SF, Volume 4, and co-editor of the World Fantasy Award-nominated short story collections The Jinn Falls in Love and Other Stories and The Outcast Hours. She writes about books regularly for Pakistan's leading English newspaper, Dawn, and for Tor.com. So you are a, a long-term podcaster on Midnight in Karachi, where you've interviewed the likes of Margaret Atwood, Emily Sinjin Mandel, Nadia Korofor, and Sami Shah, who also appears on this podcast. You also edit anthologies extensively and review frequently, so there's a few media forms that you work in. Do you have a preference for writing? No, I have a preference for reading. <laughs> I, Great I preference answer. For, I have a preference for reading and I have a preference for stories, and that, that's my answer. I'm going to stick to it. Absolutely. <laughs> so when you're reading, do you have a favorite kind of form? So I'm thinking about, obviously, the outcast hours and the gin falls in love and other stories. And of course, the apex book of World SF Volume 4 that you edited. What draws you to a short story? I'm going to answer this, but I'm not being facetious. Mm-hmm. The thing that draws me most to a short story is if it's actually short. And I think brevity is key to a great deal of short stories. And a and to the impact a short story makes. And this is something that I wanted very much to do with Jen, and I think Jared knew from the start. Because people would ask us when we were doing promo work for that anthology, what makes a good story? And I would, what makes a good short story? And I would always say, if it's short. Because I think overindulgent editors also let some writers just write too much. But that could be said for novels too. Yeah, I think that there's I think that there's something really special about getting a short story to that perfect intersection of being concise and and also kind of leaving you or 
or never leaving you rather. I mean, I'm, my favorite short stories are the ones that just never go away. Um, right. I think Sammy Shah's Reap is, is something like that. Yeah, I'm very, I'm really proud of Reap uh, and Sammy. I knew him socially in Karachi much before he started writing fiction or I started doing this. Uh, and I knew when I was putting Jin together that I needed, there was no way I could put this together without somebody from Karachi and Sammy was the perfect person for it. And he's really great about his fiction because he's not precious about editing. I could slash out large chunks and say, you don't need this, you don't need this, don't get carried away, and he can handle it. And it just ends up with a far tighter story. Exactly, it's, it's the tightness. It's almost the way we describe music, right? With the, the tightness of a short right. story um, and the, like, the tightness of a band, and that's kind of what, what creates that quality. In your editing work, kind of what are you looking for when you're thinking about taking on um, somebody or you're, you know, you're reading something that's been published and, and you're, you're just kind of trying to draw out what is, uh, what is special about that text? It depends on who it is. When you ask about what I'm looking for in a short story, if, if I'm thinking about commissioning somebody, then to be perfectly honest, we didn't have any sort of open call for these anthologies, for Jin or Outcast. We had a very long list of writers, and Jared and I are not afraid to ask people who, you know, short of being dead, are impossible. We, we have no problems getting no's for an answer, but people were also amazing, cause as you can see from the the table of contents we had all sorts of amazing people who said yes for both anthologies so ultimately if I look for somebody it's somebody from whom I would just want to read a short story not necessarily edit one and not of course everyone wants or needs editing I guess we've been very lucky because all our writers have been very open to suggestions but you know I'm not gonna lie it was really tough writing to Marina Warner Dame Marina Warner and saying okay we need to take a second look at your opening that was not easy. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's the task of a good uh, of a good editor to to go in and and no matter the status, do a bit of fixing. I can think of some writers who are doing very well and are very lauded. Who the kind of recent work makes me think, oh, I think your editors are just letting you do whatever. Oh, absolutely, and so many. I see this so much in in fiction as well, and it comes back to length for me sometimes, because there are books that I read that are good. But at the end of it all, I want to hold that book up and just shake it so all the excess falls off. <laughs> and I feel like the editor has not done that because the writers, you know, published 20 books or won 500 awards or whatever it is. But at some point you have people like, okay, let's not take names, but you have famous writers who are just playing famous writers. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So I think an editor needs to be a little more responsible to the story and less to the writer. I think you're certainly doing the, the writer a service and you'd be doing the story a disservice if you didn't try and kind of mine it yeah. from the rough. But at the same time, you have to keep in mind it's one perspective, right? If I can go back to Sami's Reap uh, as an example, if I remember correctly, he and I did five drafts. I mean, he did five drafts. I just gave him opinions on five drafts. And then eventually he made a case for the fourth draft that made more sense. And we went back to it. Luckily, he wasn't precious about the fact that he did a whole extra draft that wasn't used. But it didn't mean that my opinion was 100% at the end, right? He made a good case for it. And we went with the fourth draft and it ended up being the best one. So it is still a matter of perspective. At some point, I guess you have to find a way to trust each other. I think a good story is a good story. Hmm. And that's it. I completely agree. Um, I think it's Le Guin who uses the, uh, the literary ghetto yeah. phrase. Yeah. How do you feel about, yeah. about that debate? I don't like 
the ghettoizing of genre fiction. Um, I also don't like the ghettoizing of people of color or women and the whole, my least favorite D word, which is diversity. I don't think we need to do that in order to judge good stories. I love the the dynamic that Atwood and Le Guin had mm. and the fact that they would write about each other and that clearly they had a deep admiration for each other's work. And yet Atwood, who is a complete hero of mine, as Le Guin was, Auntie Peggy, as I think of her in my head, uh, she always insists she is speculative because, like you've just pointed out, she doesn't want to be ghettoized in that way. And as much as I think it's silly, I kind of understand where she's coming from because speculative or genre fiction can be, I guess, clickish in certain ways. And once you get in there, will they take you back? Will they not? It's very strange to me. Like, why is that there? When did, when did that happen? To me, everything is metaphor, right? I mean, the greatest stories, as far as I'm concerned, are speculative fiction at some level or the other. One of my favorite books of all time is Toni Morrison's Beloved. You tell me that's not a zombie story. You tell me that's not a ghost story. I completely agree. Yeah. And there's a yeah, a sort of failure in um in I suppose the in the academy to to recognize the the inherent literariness uh, that could be built into um or be uh, completely inherent to uh, a zombie story or a ghost story or a story yeah. about gin or you know um monsters coming from the sea or aliens landing in Nigeria. Absolutely. Yeah. I think Margaret was trying to be practical mm. uh in some way. But I, I mean, she's trying to work within the system, I suppose, which doesn't make the system okay. Absolutely. So thinking about another kind of genre or, or ghettoized genre, when we talk about dystopian fiction and I suppose the huge popularity of that, I mean, you've said that you're a huge fan of dystopian fiction. What do you, I mean, how do you, how do you think about dystopia? Um, you know, what kind of tropes do you identify in it? And what draws you to those? So I have to say my entire perspective has changed given what 2020 has been like right. for everyone all over the world. And I realized that as much as I thought reading lots and lots of dystopian fiction, starting from, you know, 1984, from when I was probably too young to have read it, and onwards, everything else I've read till now, I thought I was prepared for the apocalypse. But what I didn't think about is that I'm not prepared for the actual apocalypse I'm prepared for what comes after because the apocalypse isn't always one big crash boom bang and everything falling apart sometimes it is a very slow grinding halt of the machine and dystopia isn't as extreme as you think it is it's what we now call the new normal <laughs> so it's been very strange for me to watch all this happen because I do think that uh, having learned everything I know about survival in a dystopia from fiction um, has to be reanalyzed now. Yeah, that, I love that idea of the slow grinding halt of the machine. The perfect example of that is A.G. Wells's The Machine Stops, which I kept suggesting everyone I knew read when uh, the quarantine set in, the lockdown set in, at least here in Malaysia, uh, which might have been a little earlier than uh, other parts of the West. But I think that for me is the, is the classic slow grinding halt. Oh, I'm sorry, did I say H.E. Wells? Um, I don't know why I always think that's Ian Foster, my mm, mistake. No, no, don't worry. There's also, I suppose, the the argument about what kind of author is a literary author versus what kind of author is a genre author, because we don't think of Ian Foster as a um, Absolutely. as a speculative author. And then, of well, course, Emily St. John Mandel had the same thing yeah. happen to her. When Which, she wrote Station Eleven, she was like, oh, so if it's set in the future, now it's speculative. 
Yeah. Well, see, here's, this is my Freud and slip right there, right? Why did I say A.G. Wells? I know it's not A.G. Wells, but my brain doesn't compute that it's not someone considered a science fiction writer who wrote The Machine Stops, which so, says a lot for how my brain's been socialized about all this. Yeah, and it's a weird, it's, it's interesting to think about it as a kind of socialization, right? Because we have to kind yeah. of work against it. It's a little bit like inherent misogyny um, or inherent racism's that you kind of then Absolutely. have to have to fight back against because it's it's part of a larger power structure. Absolutely. And I think I mentioned to you earlier in our emails that I grew up in Karachi. I was born and raised there. And my university years were spent in Montreal, but university is in real life. So let's let's leave those three years out of it. But genuinely when I entered this world of, of publishing, there is yet so much that I do not understand because I wasn't socialized to sort of, you know, or geared that way. Um, Jared and I ran a very long column on Tor.com on a reread of Dragonlance. And I had no clue until I was an adult that those stories were based on tabletop games. I didn't know what Dungeons and Dragons was. I read those books because I found them in a bazaar in Karachi, old, you know, moth-eaten paperbacks. And that's all I thought they were. I thought they were original fiction. So there's a lot of things that I'm still trying to figure out. Um, and sometimes I wonder if my, the fact that my perspective is so skewed is a good thing or a bad thing. I have not yet decided. I mean, I think it's entirely necessary, kind of uh, value judgments of good or bad entirely aside. I think it's really, really useful. And I think what, you know, what Tor's head, Patrick has said about the present being the golden age of science fiction, because now for the first time, perspectives that are not those that would already know about a tabletop game um, or, you know, just men writing, you know, space fascism. Um, right. You know, that that era is over and that we now have, you know, people who are writing stories that are said in the future or have a speculative element um, or are fantastical in some way. But it's almost more about the characters and the world building is not put to the side, but not yeah. the key thing, because it's what people do in different circumstances, I think, which sure. is what we're interested in. Right. We are. And I, I can't agree with him fully because I don't think it's there yet. I think it's starting, but I think there's still, I genuinely believe diversity is a ghetto, and I don't know when we'll get out of that. Um, so I have huge problems with with those judgments um, or bringing in the whole diversity angle. I, don't, I, I understand why they're doing it, but I still don't accept it quite so easily. For example, I had to actively choose a few years ago to say that I'm not going to talk about diversity, to say that you cannot just ask me my opinion of something as a Pakistani woman, hmm. because I have opinions and other things that have nothing to do with the fact that I'm a Pakistani woman. And so the, 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 I think it's complicated. The whole diversity thing is complicated. I'm really glad that publishing is opening up. I do still think it's not open enough, of course, because what is enough, right? How to have a completely open, fair, playground you can't when everybody's coming with different baggage or different um lack of i don't know exposure education or whatever it is i'm summarizing greatly here um but yeah so i think it's going to take a long time for us to get to that point i think it's opening up i do think interestingly if you bring this back to dystopia there are perspectives that i read and there are books that i read 
And I think, oh, this is Karachi in 1996, you know. And then I'll read reviews where people talk about how there's this awful, terrible, dystopic vision in this book. And I just laugh because the onus, so much of that is on the reader. And it's so much of a reader's baggage that they bring into every story. So someone might think that this is the golden age of science fiction. I'm not going to agree because I come from a completely different perspective. And I think there's still just a lot more work to be done. Mm. I think a part of this problem, right, is the idea that you can um, kind of slap diversity on, you know, on a, on a publisher's uh, website and, and be done with it um, rather than actively engaging in those power, you know, those power structures that, um, you know, that, that limit or that in some way exoticize um, alternative perspectives. So much, so much of that exists. And, you know, sure, at some level, I suppose all of us are meant to be grateful that we have the chance <laughs> of representing, you know, ourselves and a wider worldview in this quest for diversity. But at the same time, it's, you know, we're sick of being fetishized and exoticized. And it's that whole, what did Edward Said call it? It's Orientalism. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, think, if we're thinking about world building here and the idea of Orientalism, I mean, what do you think are do's and don'ts, um, if any, of world building um, with, that, with our conversation in mind? Yeah, see, this is so hard. This is so hard to describe, to understand, to even have uh, one solid opinion on. Do you know what I mean? Because it's growing and changing so much. I would never tell somebody who was someone in the West, a white person in the West, I would never say to them, oh, you're not allowed to write a brown character. Of course not. You know what I mean? Human experiences are completely shared. Why would I not want you to have people of all sorts in your book? Where then in my mind or anyone else's mind is that line crossed and are you appropriating or playing to a certain audience? Where then are you crossing a line between representing a world that we live in or sticking diversity as a little sticker on your Goodreads review. <laughs> you know what I mean? So where's yeah. that line? It's, it's, it's not, I don't have an answer for you in this. I don't think anyone does. To some extent, I want to say, oh, it comes from the writer's intent. Like, you know, how much is this, is there authenticity in this story or not? And, but at the same time, sometimes the story is just not, not good. So it doesn't work out either way. Yeah. And I think, as you said earlier, there's also the reader's baggage, right? So when when we're reading particular texts in the West, you know, I'm speaking to you in Kuala Lumpur from Oxford, but, you know, texts that I read here are very different to those that I read in Johannesburg growing up because those contexts are so different. It would be nice to have everyone have access to everything. I just don't know what kind of global platform that would be. Mm. I mean, let's first start on getting people to read more, right? (laughs) <laughs> or just literacy let's take it a step further back well this is the thing people complain about about people not reading enough or i suppose those of us who read too much um complain about those who don't read yeah. enough um and i mean i don't know what reading enough uh, entails um or what that would be what that would look like but i think yeah going further back is is a question of literacy and of what kind of um of knowledges kind of count as literacy right um yeah and what kind of culture we develop in mm. kids who, we're, again, we're talking about privilege here, we're talking about kids who have been taught to read or have access to things to read. 
And even within that tiny privileged lot, are we creating a culture of storytelling? Mm, yeah. Or is it all Instagram and TikTok? <laughs> well, this links us, I think, um, quite closely to the title of the podcast, which is Narrative Futures, and thinking about what kind of kind of, I mean, the very shortness of the narratives on something like TikTok or Snapchat um, or Instagram, for example, and also a curated narrative, these being very, very different ways of expressing oneself or communicating. And I think, yeah, I think it's really interesting to, to, to think about different ways that we um, construct narrative. I mean, what are the things that you're seeing that you're most interested in or struck by? I'm actually, let me mention first the things that I'm afraid of. Hmm. It is literally, and because I have a 12-year-old daughter, so she's at that, and she's always been a reader, which is great, but she's at that point where electronics are more interesting, her friends are getting smartphones, they have Instagram accounts which I keep telling you it's completely illegal because you're underage, but, you know, it's all happening. My fear is, and I see this as an adult in myself with the constant use of my phone, for example, the concentration spans of everyone are decreasing so much. And I worry that will not result in better short stories. It will result in absolute trash on TikTok passing off as, I don't know, creative expression or creative narratives and i'm sure that there are people who are using things like tiktok i'm not on tiktok so i don't know enough about it let me you know preface with that but i'm sure there are people saying valid things on tiktok but i think i fear that it will be a sort of a cancer where the good will get all burnt out by the bad Mm. and then my fear is that that's what we'll end up with it's just a bunch of like little mini TikTok dances. And is that really going to be our what our representation is of, of the next generation's creative art or narrative? I really hope I'm being really extreme because that right now seems to be like the worst case dystopic future <laughs> that I can think right now. Because everyone's locked in their homes and all they've got is the internet and their phones. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think the idea of kind of being locked in with our phones, um, you know, which are portals, essentially, you know, we're, we're all, we're all time traveling um, all the time. Time and space traveling, and, and it's a great connection, but so easy to make into a completely superficial connection as well. Yeah, and then there's, and then I suppose there's the presumption that we, we think about particular kinds of travel and time and space travel as, um, as permissible and, and good, you know, and others as, as less good. But then, well, it comes back to the author's intention, right, or the creator's intention in this case. Yeah. Um, as well as yeah. the, as well as whoever is receiving it. Um, yeah, big into, <laughs> into the narratology of TikTok. <laughs> the two yeah, of us have I, gone. Here. I, I mean, I'm not even on TikTok, so I'm really basing this on the little I know, and I'm hoping that you know someone will write in and say that I'm completely wrong and I would want to hear that I am uh, but it's interesting what you say about phones being portals a Pakistani writer called Mohsen Hamid mm. uh, had a book out a couple of years ago called Exit West yes um, it's in the second chapter of my thesis oh, yeah. it, well you know the book then so you know that mm. it's about portals or doorways that suddenly pop up all over the world yes and he these are not you know, metaphoric door is the physical door that you can walk through and you enter another space in the same time, but another space. And so you have essentially refugees going from one space to the other and moving all around. And then the portals get guarded because the ones that are entering first world countries, everybody wants to storm into. But, you know, 
there are people with guns on the other side making sure you can't come in but the ones entering your poorer countries are wide open because no one wants to go there i mean it ends up being quite literally um literally being taken as a doorway because that's what it is but to me the first half of that book was essentially a portal fantasy uh no different from narnia or anything like that and i know mostin and i know that he's a science fiction geek as a child he had been and that sort of stays in him and i wish he pushed further with that in the second half of the book but i really enjoy the fact that 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 we look at refugees or people wanting to move to a better life as people who are trying to live out their fantasies because what else is migration if not a fantasy mm so i found that particularly interesting because i think phones do that for us as well they are little doorways they are little portals and through them we enter into another space and very often it's wish fulfillment when we walk through that portal yeah that's really really beautiful and very profound um i think i think thinking about uh mohsen hamid's exit west and uh movement across space and time um and i think the fact that uh nadia and said's sort of city of origin is never named is really important to that because it's kind of this yeah. coming from nowhere to somewhere but obviously it's it's i mean it's kind of characterized as lahore or um islamabad yeah um yeah i mean in my mind it was lahore because mohsen's from lahore and it mm. felt like lahore my father's from lahore i have family there so i right. knew it well it's interesting that you mentioned the nameless city because I recently wrote an essay on Exit West. Let's not go into for where for to be published in a book, but the person who was editing it wrote back and said, "Oh, you've left. You've said it's a nameless city." And some reviewers had thought that this was somewhere in Iraq or somewhere in, you know, somewhere else. And and do you want to talk a little bit more about this? And I wrote back to this editorial comment saying, "Who are these reviewers <laughs> who don't know that it's Pakistan?" Because it's yeah. amazing to me. And see, that's what I mean about the readers' onus. Mm. If you don't know anything about Pakistan, you will assume that it is a country like Iraq that you might have heard more about in the news for example or you might think it's a country like i don't know jordan which is flooded with refugees from palestine you know what i mean or you might think it's lebanon but you don't think it's pakistan because you don't know enough about pakistan whereas somebody who knows anything about mosin or pakistan will immediately know that this is lahore yes it's yeah. like clever of him to have left it nameless of course but it was yet again an example to me of the reader's onus and what the reader brings to what they're reading. Mm. I I mean I think so I think some of the stories thinking about what jinns are um so the stories in uh, the jinn falls in love you know this idea that there are that there are some myths um or yeah some kind of folkloric myths that pervade kind of all cultures and and appear in different ways but then you know it's it's the um yeah it's the readers kind of context that that fills in the the you know that fills in the color i suppose i think that you've spoken um previously i think to atwood about about you know the role of of folklore in in the narrative and how you know how that plays out yeah we had well i mean what else would you speak to margaret atwood about <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Among, well, a lot of other things, I suppose. But the thing with the jinn very simply was that the jinn simply represented to me the other. And that's not something that is lacking in any culture anywhere in the world. There is always the idea of the other, someone who is not you and yet you, something uncanny. Um it's hard to avoid regardless of whether it stems from Islamic folklore or not. Mm. 
And I think that's what made the idea of, well, actually, no, the real reason I wanted to put together, the reason I pitched a, a gin anthology to Jared in the first place was because I said, why on earth isn't there one? Because this, these are stories I want to read because there were so many that we grew up with. It made complete sense to just have everyone from all over the world because it wasn't something that anybody, I think, any of the writers we asked had to think very hard about. It is that kind of a universal idea. Yeah, absolutely. That I think that's really interesting. That 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 sense of it being something um, universal. Um, and when we think about you know when we think about narrative, when we think about knowledge, and uh, you know different cultures kind of uh, use narrative in different ways in different places. And you know I'm, I'm South African, so there's a lot of um, discussion around oral um, narrative and oral um, traditions and literatures. And yet the gin um, manifests everywhere. I can think of South Africa's version of that too. God knows how we accidentally managed to ask people from all over the world. Like, that's not possible, you know? Mm. You think it was hard or something. Uh, shocking. Hmm. Yeah. You can achieve this. Yeah. But it's... <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but, but it's not. Yeah. I mean, yeah. did you have the same experience with the outcast hours? Absolutely. Like, I mean, you know, we, we, like I said, Jared and I make these long lists. And I always joke with him saying, short of people being dead... We will just put them on our list because, you know, what? what's the worst that can happen? Someone will say no. Big deal. We'll just, you know, we'll keep asking. Uh, we work, as you can imagine, on charm alone and keep asking people. But we ask writers we want to read and we think would just write really interesting stories. So even with Outcasts, we put together that. And again, shocking that you end up with a list that other people would call diverse. I won't use that word. And, you know, that has as many women in it. Mm. Or women writers in it. So I, it, I always think, well, if I can manage this without much of an effort, everybody else who says that they have to really try to put that together, it, that throws me. You know, it means there's something inherently wrong in how you're doing this, or more importantly, something inherently wrong with how you're reading. Because I think if you're reading only a certain bracket or, you know, kind of writer, yeah, demographic, editor will, demographic, that's the word. And then you as an editor, are going to find it difficult to step outside of that demographic. And not to say people don't make an effort. Of course people do. There are plenty of anthologies out there that have wide-ranging demographic of writers and for whom I have great respect. But I do, do not believe that that is a very difficult thing to do. Narrative Futures For those writers and speculators listening, Stay with us now for writing prompts and exercises designed to encourage putting pen to paper, or hands to keyboard, as well as reflection on the writing process. This section is designed and presented by Louis Greenberg. Marvish Murad says that from an editor's point of view, brevity is key. I'm going to keep this prompt brief. Take what you're working on right now and summarise it. First, the story idea in a 200-word paragraph. Second, write a one-line elevator pitch. If you're not working on anything now, choose something you've written recently. After that, apply the exercise to the last book you read or film you watched. Does this exercise tell you anything about your story? Does it help clarify your intentions in any way? Comparing your work in progress with a produced film or book is it easier to find the synopsis or pitch in one or the other? Do you prefer books or films whose central point is easily identifiable? Mm-hmm.
Murad tells us that the jinn represents the figure of the other and connects it with an uncanny mirroring. The jinn is clearly a powerful psychomythological motif throughout the world. There are tokoloshes and leprechauns and jackals and tricksters and imps dotted in every culture, boogeymen under every bed and in every jar in the corner. For your next exercise, describe your own personal jinn. What specific little monster scared you as a child? Why do you think it was scaring you? To keep you in line? To warn of dangers? To offer a sense of the supernatural or the other? To what purpose? Describe what they look like and how they communicate and behave. What do they do? Are they malicious? Is their trickery psychological, that is internal, or social and external? Can you imagine a story playing out with this character? If you can, plot it out briefly. Thanks to Marvesh for joining us on this episode of Narrative Futures. Next week, we'll be hosting Marvesh's co-editor and collaborator, Jared Shuren, to discuss indie publishing, the Kitschies Awards, and literary institutions and the genres that defy them. Narrative Futures.